Will the SSG Landers turn their regular season title into a Korean Series championship? Are we set for a repeat of last year's Japan Series between the Oryx Buffaloes and Tokyo Yakult Swallows? Find out the answer to absolutely none of those questions on the 69th episode of Americans Watching the Footy. Nice. Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. This is Buddy Franklin. This is the greatest showman. Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Oh, who else? McDonald. From inside the centre square. Yeah, while a lot of people got into Japanese and Korean baseball during COVID, and we certainly did that as well. I mean, I was into Japanese baseball before. True, but it got more attention definitely at the start of COVID, but safe to say those passions waned pretty quickly for most people when the American leagues came back. We stuck with the footy, and now we're on the nicest episode of all. Yeah, suck it all, you fake-ass Doosan Bears fans. I'm Benjamin Castle. I'm Ethan Castle. This is Americans Watching the Footy, and we came to you last time about a week ago in the middle of the trade period, and a lot has happened since then. But I'm glad we waited one more night to record, because we have something else to talk about before we go into any detail on any other trades. Man, it is a weird time for a sacking to occur. Yeah, um, what the hell, St. Kilda? You know, I talked before about how... There's a reason some clubs and some franchises and some programs are successful and others aren't. I think I actually quoted Buster Posey in doing that. And we look at this and shit like this is why St. Kilda have won a grand total of one flag in 124 years. Not right after the season, not before the trade period, after a trade period in which St. Kilda did almost nothing. Now of all times, you sack Brett Ratton. And... I feel sorry for him, but also, this is a liberation of sorts. He's out of this shit show of a club. And it seems like the leadership let him down. And we're far from alone in saying this. Reporter Peter Ryan says that the club leadership had doubts and didn't communicate them as they signed him to a two-year extension just three months ago. The Saints were 8-3 and three before the bye and were the reverse of that after. Now, let's note... They could have been 9-2 and two before the bye had anyone been able to kick straight in Cairns. Had Max King kicked better against the Lions, they'd probably win in round 22. But if this had happened, like, I don't know, a month ago, I would have said, sure, I get it. I don't know if I would agree with it, but I get it. I'd still be surprised because of the extension having been signed right before. It would have been not even two months after the extension that the sacking would have occurred, but based on the catastrophic change in the Saints' fortunes within the season, at least it would have been understandable then. My question is, why did the review take this long? And kind of connected to that, why is it only happening after the trades when you're a month and a half out for the preseason? 
when the draft is on the horizon, who wins out of this other than absolutely no one? I mean, I guess whoever gets the head coaching contract will win in terms of windfall. But in terms of stability, I doubt it. And I mean, the same candidates will obviously pop up. Imagine if they bring Ross Lyon back for another go around. At this point, I expect that they'll just promote Lenny Hayes. Again, had Rappin been fired at year's end, I still would have said you probably didn't have a good enough team. I thought this was like a wooden spoon caliber roster and I was wrong. Then I thought, ooh, this could be a final team. And again, I was wrong. And then we thought Ratton's job was safe after the extension, so Owen Preet. But early in the year, it seemed like he was making some really smart adjustments, and I thought he was actually coaching pretty well. He is the most recent coach to have beaten Geelong. Just want to just remind you of that. It was after that loss that myself and a bunch of other Cats fans said, this team can't win a flag. Wrong on that, too. But you would have understood where we were coming from at the time. My, my point here is just... The whole timeline is bizarre, and the only way you could justify it is if a bunch of players that you were interested in in the trade period said, no, we don't want to play for Ratten. And I've heard nothing to suggest that that's what happened. All that we know now is if you have a surname that is R-blank-T-T-E-N, don't fucking take a job with a red and black team because you will get fucked over by your own. I hope Ratten can land somewhere if he wants to as an assistant, but would be completely understandable if he takes the time off from the coaching ranks. Maybe does some TV work, not entirely sure. I would like to see him on TV because he's usually a pretty good interview. He and Luke Beveridge are among the coaches that before this season and still with Beveridge, I thought, maybe not great tactically, but good interviews. The difference is Beveridge's dogs landed, well, one big trade target in particular, and it's definitely time to get into that trade discussion now. You know, we could go over every trade, but I feel like most people who are listening to this have at least gotten a taste of the big stuff. But one of the biggest takeaways that I got throughout all this is that the rich are continuing to get rich. And the idea that there could be some sort of level footing for a lot of teams, even with the mechanisms the AFL has tried to put in place, is invalid. And I'm fine with that, not just because I'm a fan of one of those rich teams that got richer, but because... I'm not a believer in professional teams getting handouts. It's not the handouts that bother me so much. I think that the North Care package was a lot more reasonable than the previous ones that had been given to teams like Gold Coast in terms of, hey, you get the top two picks now. But for example, the pick trading rules and stopping teams from trading out of the first round if they don't have all their other picks, etc. I'm not a huge fan of that. Let teams... Let teams bargain their futures for multiple years if they want. Keep the market free. Yeah, I'm a believer that each team can have their own philosophy and approach. And if it doesn't work for you, sorry, but I don't think it should have to be like something that the league imposes on teams that, you know, there's one way you have to run your club. Yeah, you have to make two first round selections in a four year window without specific approval from the AFL to trade things away. The Los Angeles Rams would have a heck of a time under that rule. Yeah. And look at the Rams so far this year. They won their Super Bowl last year. They look kind of shitty so far this year. They have the ring though. But yeah, I'm fully of the belief that teams should be able to take whatever path they feel is a good one. If it means that they're fucked over for multiple years because of it, Oh, well, hindsight's twenty twenty. Maybe this is kind of an American, just 
free market economist viewpoint of things as well. I'm not entirely sure. But from our outside perspective, we don't quite understand these draft pick trade restrictions. Yeah, I just don't see any benefit to the league imposing these rules as if they're trying to tell every team, you know, you have to do things this way. I think it would be really interesting and really entertaining if, you know, you had some teams that decided fuck draft picks and then you have other teams that end up with like five picks in a row. I think it would be tremendously entertaining. On the topic of the rich getting richer, though, we obviously do need to start with Geelong because they're a main topic of discussion, first from winning the flag and then from being maybe the biggest winner in all of this past week and a half of trades. By the way, my Carlton Draft Brian Myers shirt is on the way. Still need to get a few things figured out from the Premiership range, but my Brian Myers shirt is on the way. And I think there are other teams that might have had bigger gains out of this trade period, but they were gains that we knew about earlier. Whereas with Geelong, a lot of it was kind of a recent development. Some was kind of last minute, actually. We had heard some rumblings about Tanner Brune coming over for GWS. So that was one we kind of knew. That became official for pick number 18. Then came perhaps the biggest one, Jack Bowes, who himself, look, first round pick that hasn't really lived up to expectations. But that's not the big thing here. It's that the Cats got pick seven as part of a salary dump. This is where well-run teams get rewarded and poorly run teams don't. And then Ali Henry did come home. That was one of the last trades to end up happening because it ended up being roped in with the Tom Mitchell deal. So it was a weird Geelong, Hawthorne, Collingwood trade. You would not expect any of those two teams to really interact normally in trades. Yeah, it was kind of like a will they, won't they, and eventually it finally came together. I always had the inclination that they would, and it was a matter of the terms and waiting as long as they could. As expected, Collingwood got picked 25 out of it. That pick was originally the Brisbane Lions. Yeah, Collingwood at times were saying that pick 25 wouldn't be enough, but it ended up becoming a three-way deal where Cooper Stevens went over to Hawthorne. So the Hawks, will talk more about them in a bit, but they decided to get younger and they were pretty young already. I think this is a great move for Stevens because it should give him a chance to really play, which just may not have been present for a while at Geelong. You know, maybe if guys are hurt or getting rested, there would have been room for him. But even in that younger group, even before you bring in Bose, even before you bring in Brune, even before you bring in Henry, you're still fighting for position with guys like, although he's a bit of a different body type, different skill set, guys like Shannon Neal. Even with Francis Evans and Quentin Narkel gone, you've got a healthy Flynn Kroger coming up. You've got Mitch Nevitt. There are some young guys who impressed in the VFL that are going to be pushing for selection. And now you throw in all these guys that just came in through the trade period. You factor in, look, some guys that were healthy this year probably aren't going to be healthy next year, but you offset that by having guys like Sam Menegola healthier. And I think from a you know from an individual career standpoint, this is good for Stevens. I don't think it helps his prospects of winning a flag in the short term, but I think he benefits from this on the long-term side of things. And it's just... It's an unfortunate casualty because the little bits of him I saw, I was impressed by. Just tough spot for him to be in. Now, Benjamin, you kind of made this tier list and talked about, you know, this top tier is the rich getting richer, one of which is Rich Mund, who we knew they were bringing in a lot to begin with. 
Tim Taranto was already on board coming in for a first rounder in the first pick of the second round. That had broken by our last recording. Then they brought in Jacob Hopper and two later picks for pick 31 this year and their first rounder next year. The amazing part of this all for me for Richmond is that they did not need to give up any players in order to make these trades possible. There was talk about them maybe parting ways with Avon Soldo, Hugo Ralsmith's name maybe had been thrown around. And we'd already been really complimentary of Richmond's depth and the versatility of a whole lot of their list. Now they get to keep all those pieces while adding a couple of those talents up near the top of it. If you had any doubts on Richmond's top four potential, especially with some of their midfield future after Dustin Martin really squared away now, I think those doubts can be allayed. So long as they can, you know, actually win a close game. Yeah, I think that's going to be a one-off thing. Convince me with one or two of those close wins early on, and there shouldn't be any other major problems there. That's exactly what I said. Win a close game early. Win, you know, two of your first three close games, and all the concerns are gone. With Geelong, with Richmond, these two recent flag teams, which have their older elements for sure, Geelong, of course, having fielded the oldest side ever in the grand final and also the most experienced side ever. But for both teams, as is evident by this trade period and the way they've been trending before this, a full rebuild doesn't look necessary for either of them. And so that's very strong list management to make that possible. I said not long ago, like in one of our most recent episodes, I forget which one because it's kind of hard to keep track, but... I want the Cavs to basically do what Richmond did this past year, except without a bunch of heartbreaking dick punch losses. believe that was the last time out. Yeah, you know, kind of bridge the gap, pass the torch on from the older guys to the younger guys, show some development, show that you don't have to go into a full-fledged rebuild because rebuilding is not something that this club wants to do, clearly. By the way, I just learned Jacob Hopper is from New South Wales. He's from Leeton, which is towards the northern end of the Riverina region, which I mentioned because I had just heard about Leeton the other day in a story because a wanted criminal was found there. A guy with tons of face tattoos, including the word beast on his forehead. I just, it's nice to know that the guy from Fresno a few years ago who had Gucci tatted on his forehead has like a long lost Australian friend or brother, or cousin, or something. There's definitely some sort of relation there. The difference here is, unlike the Gucci tattoo, it's kind of like in the negative space, like Beast is basically, you know, the outline was tatted, and everything else on his face was. Basically, the word Beast was left blank, whereas the word Gucci was tatted on the guy's forehead, among a shit ton of other face tattoos, including Speak No Evil, where where a mustache would be. If you just look up Gucci forehead tattoo, you'll find it because there's a very long Laotian name. It was part of some sort of like Southeast Asian street gang in Fresno, which is a thing. This just feels like a Tenacious D type origin story between these two guys. But back to Richmond, I think we're going to be pretty high on them again next year, expecting them to finish higher than they did last year. A floor for them feels like around where they were this year, if health is on their side. Yeah, I think... Worst case scenario, unless they get absolutely skull-fucked by injuries, is that they're playing in an elimination final instead of a qualifying final. You know, there's always the chance that you could just get so badly fucked by injuries that your entire season goes off the rails. And I mean, that's kind of true in any sport or really any form of football. I mean, it happens to an NFL team every year. 
The third team in the rich getting richer category, even though they had to pay a little bit more of a price for their biggest prize in free agency, is the Brisbane Lions. They had to pay pick 21 and three future picks, including their first and second rounders, to get Josh Dunkley along with a couple thirds for next year. Dunkley having just been named the dog's best and fairest. But all they had to give up to get Jack Gunston, even though he's on the older side, was pick 48 in a future fourth. Seems like a low price to pay, especially when Hawthorne are looking to get so much younger, you think they'd want to get at least a little bit of a higher pick. Yeah, that really didn't add up to me. As much as I like a lot of what Hawthorne's done lately on the football side, not on the whole uh, other thing side. And we're waiting for the fallout from that, of course. And we'll get onto that in a bit or touch on it briefly, but they didn't get as much as you'd think they would on this trade. Even though, yes, again, Gunston's turning 31 this week. Happy birthday. But when you look at the production he's had throughout his career, close to two goals a game, you would think that would merit a little bit more than what the Hawks netted. Even if he was a couple years older, it still seemed like it would be a bit of an underpay. Gunston seems like an instant remedy for the set shot issues Joe Danaher has had in particular. And having that, having Gunston in that forward group along with Danaher and Hipwood should allow Danaher to be able to be flexed a bit further back, maybe allow him to take some more ruck contests, especially after the departure of Dan McStay, and allow him to use his full field marking ability, which we've definitely seen at times. Yeah, um, was listening in on a bit of Mitch Robinson's live stream last night, and he mentioned that it looks like Danaher's going to be the number two ruck, which seems like Danaher doesn't love being a ruckman, but... I mean, he'll put up and do it, and he's not terrible at it. He's a really big guy. This just really completes that tall forward group where you would think, so long as you have all three of them out there, at least one of them has to be on every night. And this is you know, the sort of move that's consistent with trying to put on the finishing touches to a championship team. Make it good on having to lose McStay and really not losing much else. Thomas Berry left for the Gold Coast, but it was going to be hard for him to make his way in. They stood pat with Devin Robertson, managing to keep him. I would have loved to have seen the Eagles try to make a play for him and maybe give Brisbane a pick that would have facilitated the Dunkley deal, but it seemed like they had the pieces already to make that possible. But yeah, Geelong, Richmond, Brisbane, they're that top of the of the winners of this trade period tier with the rich getting richer. And then along with them... A couple other big winners. I didn't come into this trade period thinking Melbourne would be this high up in my assessment of the 18 teams for this week and a half, but I think they made really well from having to trade Luke Jackson back home. They got decent compensation for him. Pick 13 this year, Fremantle's first two picks next year, and then their second rounder was enough for them to take on Brody Grundy and the salary he had. Now, I'm, again, not sure how well that Gone and Grundy tandem is going to end up working. I imagine we'd see Grundy taking some more forward time with Gone's questionable finishing, especially in the back half of the season when the Ds could have really used it. But then they also made a couple smart trades with the Bulldogs to add depth at a couple spots. Lockie Hunter had some good depth on the wing. We'll have a steadier spot than James Harms had. I'll say that. So imagine him opposite Ed Langton for a lot of the time. And then full forward had been a question 
for a while for the D's and Josh Shackey could be one of those big close to goal presences that could help him out there along with a rising Jacob Van Ruyen who has got to be tapped to make his debut early in the season next year if not round one. It isn't quite you know another adding the finishing touches type move but it's the sensible moves to be able to slightly improve the situation where they're currently in. The question now is are they going to look to just keep bombing things again? Because if so, even with these additions, you'll be able to see right through them. So the onus now is on the coaching staff to drop something that's a bit new for this group, keep things fresh in their strategy, along with catering to these additions' strengths. Yeah, it's funny. You know, everyone was singing Simon Goodwin's praises in 2021 as, you know, the zone defense Melbourne played. And it seemed like it got figured out by the midpoint of the 2022 season. It's not as much the zone defense that's a concern as much as their forward strategy. I don't know if their forward strategy was ever great, even when they were winning, considering that a lot of their forward success was just Max gone playing out of his mind. And center clearance goal, center clearance goal, which they're still plenty capable of doing, of course. Yeah, it's just not like they've done anything especially revolutionary. I mean, they're clearly an upper echelon team, but how high is that ceiling? Because, look, last year... A lot of their wins were against lesser teams. They did not play that well against finals opponents. This past year, Melbourne were 10-0 against non-finalists in home and away, 6-6 against finalists, and then uh, straight sets. So those are the four finalists who were the winners. Then there's the team everybody expected to be in the finals that wasn't, who ends up a winner out of this trade period. It's time to talk about the mega trade, and it's time to talk about Port. For a second there, I thought you were going to say Carlton because I was thinking more like within the 2022 season. But yeah, Port Adelaide, part of this very large, well, I guess very large four-team deal would be really redundant. I don't think there's a such thing as a small four-team deal. 14 draft picks, including the top three. This is going to be one of those trades that's really fun to look back at, like, 10 years later where, you know, parts of this trade are still evolving. Some of those guys are either still in the league or, you know, some of these picks end up getting traded for picks that haven't even been made yet. There's a hockey guy, uh, Steve Glenn, Steve Dangle, big Toronto Maple Leafs fan who has done a bunch of these videos for Sportsnet, uh, one of the big Canadian sports networks. And one of the things he does is look at these trade trees, some of which have continued for decades. And this is the type of trade that, with all of its different branches, could end up sustaining itself for a half century, if not longer. Trade trees are also really fun for baseball. There are some, you know, you'll see like ramifications of 20 years later. The difference is you don't see draft picks really traded in baseball, aside from like the weird competitive balance rounds, whereas in the AFL, any draft pick, whether it's for the current draft or the one right after, is fair game. And in this mega deal, Port ended up with two players that wanted to come home. And yes, they bargained pretty much all of their next couple drafts that they could in order to do it. But if you're getting the best of Jason Horn Francis, and a good few years out of late career junior Rioli, that's going to be worth it. I still have questions about Port's backline with how old they've gotten, and that's why I would have liked to see them complete the move for Asava Radagolea. That was one of the few expected trades that didn't happen. But having Horn Francis in junior in there will allow 
more flexibility with be able to put Connor Rosie on the ball, allowing Zach Butters to run with him wherever he goes. So for the sake of winning now, I like this report. Now it's a matter of Ken Hinckley making it happen or else his head will roll very soon. Let's also note, though, as for Rioli, because of the time he's taken off, you know, don't ask him why he missed all that time. No, Brian, I said, don't ask him why. He plays like he's a bit younger than he actually is. I think that's worth noting. And yeah, Rodagulea would have been an interesting solution to their we don't have a Ruckman approach. Although, I mean, they'll have Scott Lysette back. They've still got Brid Teekle. But the fact that they can play so fluidly without a true Ruckman, putting Charlie Dixon and Jeremy Finlayson in there, that part of their game, Ruck or no Ruck, I don't think is going to be a concern. And of course, with Robbie Gray being gone, having retired, it does open up one of those half-forward spots. Now, the question is, will they try to make Horn Francis take a bath? If yes, things could get ugly. I think he'll oblige. He's back home. So with the rest of this trade, North obviously come off looking like the biggest losers because they lost Horn Francis. And pick one ended up going to GWS. But they've still got picks two and three. And I imagine they'll also get some nice compensation if they end up being the ones to bid on Will Ashcroft, which I expect they'll do. I expect at this point GWS will pick Aaron Cadman right away with number one, get the sure thing. Cadman, a Vic Country key forward who is willing to move states. And Jason McCartney, their list manager, has talked about how important that is, that you need to find those guys who are willing to move or else you often need to stick with your own area. In that case, I guess I'm more okay with the Eagles ending up with picks 8 and 12 out of this because they'll still get the first crack at some of the Western guys that may be a bit more hesitant to make the jump across the country. I like the idea of North turning this into a crap ton of picks, especially if they're able to bring in people from top to bottom that know their shit. You know, we'll see what happens with the whole Clarkson situation, but... Regardless of what goes on there, I think they're on the right path to bringing in qualified, intelligent people. And that's both on and off the field. They already used their care package to get Griffin Logan, Darcy Tucker from Fremantle. I think that's such a great haul for them. Logue especially because he can play anywhere. It's like, for those of you that follow baseball, if you remember a guy named Ben Zobrist, he played basically every position primarily second base and left and right field. But it was like, you know, when he would be a free agent or be in trade talks, it was like, here's a list of teams that could use Ben Zobris. And it was just a list of all 30 teams. He did everything except pitch and catch. Yeah. Even played first base very rarely. Guy won back-to-back World Series. I'm not saying Griffin Logue is going to make North back-to-back premiers instantly, but... He's the type of player that good teams have. And boy, you would not have said that at the start of the year. I didn't know much of anything about him at the start of the year. I just didn't have a good read on him. Yeah, I didn't know much about him, but clearly this guy belongs. And Tucker, you know, is he an amazing player? Probably not. He's only 25, so he's not super old, but he's another guy who's a better player than what they already had in-house, which is a step in the right direction. When you're where North are, you're looking to just get better across the board, and this will help them do that. 
even as they've had to stomach losing last year's number one pick. And again, considering what they were able to furlough that into, what they got out of this whole Horn Francis deal, even if it wasn't directly from Port Adelaide, I'd say they've softened the blow pretty nicely. This is about as good as it can get if you come out of a season where you had the number one pick saying this was a complete failure, he wants out, to come out of it with the second and third picks the following year and a first rounder for the year after, yeah, I'd live with that. I still read this as just a bit of a negative for North because they don't have Horn Francis or pick one for next year, but they've made the best of a bad situation, I think. In this case, I do think David King's thoughts about a team are correct. I generally find myself agreeing with David King. I think just kind of one of those polemical figures, I guess, just a lightning rod with all the commentary he makes. But I think almost everything he says, even if it's like controversial or doesn't make everyone happy, is from a pretty well-informed place. Kind of the opposite of Korn's. Yeah, he isn't just saying shit. He's saying shit with evidence almost every time. And for Korn's, it's other than turning around and starting to like Jack Ginnivan, it's, hey, if it's not poor, it's not right. Generally... Not always, but generally. I think all teams ended up looking okay at best out of this trade. Port got players that wanted to go to them. GWS have the top pick along with 15, 18, and 19. I loved the tweet from Scott Dooley. He said, As someone who follows a big Victorian club, I hope the GWS makes sensible draft decisions. My team's fortunes in three to five years depend on it. And I mean, look, at some point, GWS are going to have to shed that reputation of just kind of being the, you know, farm club for everyone's future. But if you draft well and you have a cycle of get a shit ton of high draft picks, make good on them, then trade those guys away. You got to hit on the cycle repeatedly. But if you can do it, you can have a lot of success. The thing is, you got to have enough success to generate some continuity. And at some point, you're going to need to have a real core there. But I'm a believer that if you're in a rebuild and you kind of don't have a sense of identity, which I don't think GWS really does right now, I'm all in favor of just kind of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks and then kind of making that your identity instead of coming in saying, you know, this has to be our identity. This is how we want our future to look. I think you should kind of be open to different ideas and let the identity kind of shape itself. Thanks to Anchor by Spotify and all the other apps and websites that host our podcast. Remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Americans Footy to get our thoughts anytime on all things AFL, some other Australian sport thoughts as well as they may come to us. I'm on Twitter personally at BenjaminHK01. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media, that's Castle with a K, and Grian Harambe is on Instagram at Grian. I actually just put up a post there the other day using the nice Canon DSLR camera from work, so we now have HD Grian Harambe. I mean, it was probably HD before, but... These are way better quality. Like 4K Grian. Yeah, we go from iPhone camera to actual camera. Yeah, that's a step up. Outside of... The rich getting richer and the mega trade. One of the big things that I noticed about this trade period and AFL trades in general compared to a lot of American sports, Ethan, is that the big names really in every instance here got their way. Yeah, it's 
funny because in like every American sport, you have more guys like Cooper Stevens situation where it's just kind of like you're getting traded. Pack your bags. The players union clearly has a lot more power in Australia that they're it's on the players really to ask for the trades, to be able to name exact destinations and the club having to cater to their requests rather than the clubs really having the say in who ends up moving or not. Again, in America, you see some players have no trade clauses, whether full or modified, the occasional full-on no-move clause. The only thing that I can think of that's even remotely similar is some of the transfer stuff in soccer. And even that isn't quite on this level. We weren't sure if things were going to end up happening at the end, but they all did. It took a while for Josh Dunkley, Rory Lobb, Tom Mitchell to get on the move, but they all did in the end. And a lot of them ended up being dependent on each other, especially the couple trades in which the dogs were involved. And Rory Lobb's move also unlocked the last Frio trade with Jager O'Meara and Lloyd Meek swapping teams. I'm particularly happy for Meek that he's going to get more of an opportunity when he was destined to stick with Peel Thunder behind Luke Jackson and Sean Darcy. I think Meek could end up being the main Ruckman for Hawthorne with Ned Reeves' ability around half forward, kind of as a tall half forward there. Not unlike Tom DeConan at Carlton. You know, the Ruck situation was basically a revolving door at Hawthorne last year. A lot of that was injury-based. I'm sorry, Maximum Lunch. Max Lynch seems like a cool-ass guy, and I hope he has great success, but I don't think he's very good. But I've said since the Dockers played Geelong last year, Lloyd Meek is good, and he deserves more of an opportunity. Because if you remember, heading into that game with Sean Darcy out, it's like, all right, Cats are going to dominate there. That takes care of a big issue. Nope. By the way, now that we've gone through the Ratten news, it's really funny looking at what's happened to the four clubs that beat Geelong this past year. You have St. Kilda, who did in the trade period and now fired their coach and seemed destined for mediocrity at best. In fact, mediocrity is probably a reach. You have Hawthorne, who did a racism, even though I like what they did in terms of the actual football personnel side of things. You have Sydney, who got absolutely pantsed in a grand final. Yeah, and Frio, I mean, I guess, you know, they got crapped on by Collingwood in a, in a semifinal, but... Maybe we're waiting on a domino to fall there. Maybe something really bad is going to happen for Fremantle. Even as an Eagles fan, I hope not. There's so much to like about them. And they've been maybe our pet team as we've been doing this podcast. Yours in particular, Ethan. Yeah, it's funny. Before this, you know, for the first two years watching the sport, I didn't have much of an opinion about them. They were just kind of like, they were just kind of there. They're a little lower than the middle. They weren't super exciting to watch at first. They were one of the first two teams we ever watched, though. Yeah, but it was like, from a casual standpoint, there just wasn't a lot to them. They have one of the worst club songs. Our ranking special is still valid there. And yeah, I just really gained a lot of appreciation for how they played. And after looking at their roster, it it really started with looking at their roster doing season previews. It was like, shit, these guys could be pretty good. They were primed for a breakthrough with the mix they had. And that a lot of it was still on the young side. Obviously, you had the elder statesman in Mundy, who's now gone. Fife is borderline glass, bones and paper skin, but it didn't matter. Remember, we talked every week about all these guys who were medical subs or just in consideration playing down in the waffle. 
you're going to actually see Bailey Banfield get time in the 22. Jayamis will have a steady spot. I think he could be really good. And also, this might be the longest I've ever gone talking about the Dockers without discussing Nathan O'Driscoll. So just going to mention him as well. Do I expect a step back this year? Slightly. Sixth or seventh, though? I don't know. We'll see. I think, you know, we'll see how the schedule shapes up. We'll see if they can figure out how to play anytime water falls from the sky. But I think Flagmantle could be closer to a reality than you do. I, I still don't know if they're on that top tier yet. That's my question. But they have a defense that's capable of it. And that's been pretty consistent with all three flag winners we've seen. And they convinced Jager O'Meara to make the jump over West. And that's more than fine compensation for Meek, who's a player that, again... They weren't going to get much use out of at the AFL level this next year, or if things shape up properly the next few. Yeah, entering this offseason, I thought Frio's priorities needed to be things like, you know, open up spaces for guys like Bailey Banfield, figure out what spots are expendable, and put yourself in a position where you can draft and keep loading up to, in the next couple of years, be a serious long-term contender. Because, no, I don't think they're all the way there yet. But I think there's an opportunity to win not just one flag, but really rattle off a dynasty for a few years. The one real negative that I get out of this trade period for Frio is how little they got for Blake Anchors. Yeah, what what the fuck was that? We talked about that last time. It still confuses me. On the other end, I think that makes Carlton, even though they didn't do all that much, a team out of which you can get a real positive there. Also, that they managed to get compensation for Liam Jones. Carlton is one of those teams where they have pretty much all the depth that they need now that Akers is there because the wing was the big question for them. For Frio, the depth is there. It's just younger than a team like Carlton. Yeah, let's consider how well Frio played when Akers was at his best. Almost all of their best games went hand in hand with Akers' best games. And they let him go for a third rounder? I don't care what his contract situation is. That's absolutely insane. Even if you're like looking at him as a rental. And it's really the only thing that I think Fremantle's done wrong. But it really changes how I evaluate their entire offseason. Because I feel like there was a chance there they could have gotten a lot more and set themselves up in an even better position. It says a lot about what I think about them, though, if I still think they had a pretty solid offseason even with completely botching that one. It's like, if we look back in a few years and feel that the Dockers underachieved a bit in this whole window, and it's going to be a while before we can look back because I think they're just getting started on something that should last for quite a while. But if we look back and say, man, it could have been even more than it was, not getting enough for Acres is going to be part of that. Uh, Fremantle and Carlton occupy that positive tier for me in this sort of five-tier thing that I got going. I end up seeing more teams on the positive side than the negative side. This whole trade period, trade deadlines in general, you know, they don't have to be zero-sum. You can have win-win trades. You can have lose-lose trades, although most lose-lose trades, you don't really know we're lose-lose until years down the road. Also in that tier, I've got the Bulldogs, they managed to parlay losing Dunkley, Hunter, and Shacky into some okay transactions. They provided some stability and some list versatility as well by getting Rory Lobb in there. 
We know that Sam Darcy can flex between the 50s. Could we see Aaron Naughton doing that as well? It's a big tactical question that Luke Beveridge is going to have to answer. So yeah, Beveridge, time to actually make coaching decisions. Underrated part of what opened things up for Laud is what we've seen Buku Kamis do as a defender. I'm not sure if he's got a spot in the 22 right now. Unfortunately, hopefully he still does at fullback. Well, really, I think bringing in Liam Jones definitely relegates him to a bench role. Really, though, you want to start the year with a guy who's still kind of unproven and definitely on the young side like Thomas at the kind of bench, medical sub, top of the VFL situation. And over the course of the year, whether it's through his development, other guys struggling, injuries, he ends up elevated. But you got to have more than just, you know, your... 23 guys to start the year. And remember looking at the Demons last year, it was like, well, their first 23 are damn good, but past that, it was pretty rough. And I think even with the departure of Josh Dunkley, this could help the Bulldogs get closer to having more than just 23 because last year, they didn't even have that. They had like 15, 16 guys. When we could name like one particular good game by Riley Garcia as like the only good games their depth guys had. You had Garcia against Melbourne. You had Rourke Smith the last round against Hawthorne, and that was about it. You also had Riley West absolutely balling out in the first game against Hawthorne. But I think we aren't going to be able to count those depth performances on our fingers like we did this past year. If we still are, that's a problem. I would think that's more of a list management problem than a Luke Beveridge problem, but he could be somehow implicated in that, I guess. He could end up taking the fall for it. Look, I think he's not a great coach. As I've said before, I think he's a great quote. I think he'll be awesome in media. I don't think tactically he has any sense of how to make an in-game adjustment whatsoever. And I don't know if he was ever going to have the roster where you basically don't have to make in-game adjustments because you're so good. And now you're going to have less of that. I mean, at best, talent-wise, the Bulldogs are going to be right around where they were last year. Maybe if everything hits, you take a slight step forward. You know, if Tammy English can stay out there, that would obviously help. And if Sam Darcy has like no rough games, no growing pains whatsoever, you know, you could end up closer to fifth than eighth. But I don't think... Under this system, with these coaches, that they can take it that far. And that has much less to do with this trade period. It's a bigger picture thing. Does what I'm saying make sense? Where it's like, the ceiling is not going to be that high with this staff, no matter what they have. But the floor ought to be higher than what it was. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. With a better coaching staff, this group could win a flag. Would they actually do it? I don't know, but I think it would be much more attainable. In terms of other members of that, you know, sort of not huge winner, but positive group. Also talk about the Giants. And then I'll put the Crows in here as well, because they did manage to bring Isaac Rankin home when less than a year ago. And even, you know, a substantial point into the year, it looked like that wasn't going to be happening at all. And it seems like they've got their forward questions sorted for a decent amount of time now. And then they also managed to get compensation for... Billy Frampton, who was someone that hadn't ever found a steady spot in that fullback line, didn't perform up to par this year. Maybe Collingwood have a better way to use him, but 
Hopefully, the rise of Josh Worrell will allow Adelaide to have something more stable back there. I think they're moving in the right direction. I still think it's slower than a lot of their fans would like. It's slower than I would like. But they're still moving forward. And adding Rankin means that, you know, if Taylor Walker's gone at some point, within the next couple years, I'd say, you're going to be able to withstand that even if... Rankin's more of a small forward. Walker's much more physical, big, able to take those ruck contests. Hopefully we see Riley Filthor bulking up and doing more of that. You can't have too many good forwards, and you're going to need to be able to withstand a loss like Walker at some point. And even if it's not a like-for-like replacement, it's a lot easier to get through a loss like that when you've got so many other good ones. It would be like, you know, if... You took, say, Geelong's defensive group and added even more to it because there was someone who was destined to leave in the next couple of years, even if it's not a like-for-like replacement. Now, before we go into talking about really the losers through all of this, I want to talk about kind of the, the mad teams. Some teams made some waves, didn't really make all too many big ones, if any. We touched on Collingwood with the Tom Mitchell deal. Not exactly sure how much that's going to end up working out for him. Well, a lot of his best games were against Collingwood, so maybe he knows that sort of system. But I think we're going to see more and more of Craig McRae's style within these next couple years. He's already laid a good foundation for it, and now he's making the list more of his own. Even if, and it would be fair to expect them to have less luck in tight games, a lot of their success wasn't luck-based. And Mitchell doesn't have to be that focal guy. It's it's a good role for him to be in at this spot in his career, as we'll get to Hawthorne in a bit. You know, he's been on flag-winning teams, though he doesn't have a medal from playing in a grand final. He was on the Swans VFL side in 2012, so, you know, he was probably, like, part of the group that got to celebrate, sort of, but didn't register a senior game with that team, I think. Your chances of winning a flag at Collingwood now are better than they are at Hawthorne. Your chances of winning a flag five, six years from now are going to be damn good at Hawthorne. But when you're 29, you're not looking at that. So this should benefit him. As for his best games being against Collingwood, I think it's less about him knowing the system, especially considering that a lot of that was against Nathan Buckley Collingwood teams. And just more, I'm a believer in pretty much every sport. Acquire the guys that kill you because then they can't kill you anymore. And it means one of your competitors isn't getting that guy. Like if in baseball, there's a pitcher on the trade market and maybe you don't have a need for that pitcher, but he owns you. And there's a team in your division that you're competing with. That's a major suitor for that guy. You got to get the guy. And now Collingwood won't have to play against Tom Mitchell anymore. So that's a win in my book. Also among that meh group, hardly heard from the Sydney Swans. Didn't really need to. They brought in Aaron Francis and not much else happened. I guess when it comes to our concerns with them about full forward, yes, they have one more year out of Buddy. Sam Reed's near the end of things, but I guess from there, are they pinning their hopes on Joel Amarty then? Don't think it would be a bad option. We'll see how they do draft-wise, but I don't think they had too many chances they needed to make out of this year with the Super young group, you're looking at continuity, and then maybe in another year you look at 
all right, what do we need to do to supplant these guys? What do we need to do to replace outgoing players? Maybe it'll be more than just Buddy. You never know how things change in a year, how players improve and decline. But where they are right now, doing just about nothing is totally fine. And then for teams that won't be contending, the Eagles made sensible transactions, I think, and have for the first 26 picks. They got an all right split for pick two, as we talked about earlier. And then we have our questions about Essendon top to bottom, but potential based transactions there with Satterfield and Wiedemann. Is this finally where Sam Wiedemann is going to be able to get the sort of full opportunity or is he going to get full on AFL time? Because he's someone who I've never been able to get quite a good read on. Yeah, it's funny because Essendon's forward group isn't really where they have this serious need. No, I mean, Peter Wright has been a dynamite transaction for them looking at the past few years. I seriously think next year is going to be the breakout year for Harry Jones. You've got the development for Archie Perkins. Their issues are defensive. We've said that basically all year. I was almost going to put them into a negative spot because they didn't really make any defensive splashes, but nobody wanted to go to them. And the blame for that lies beyond the immediate football management and trade window. They set themselves up for this a while back. Remember how many players were linked to them. Basically everyone. Most notably early on in the season, Jordan Degoe. Yeah, there was another team he was linked to as well that ended up doing even worse. More on them in a bit. Again, going down the list, I mentioned earlier that I have North on like the very top of that sort of negative side, making the best out of a bad situation. But I know, Ethan, you wanted to get to talking about Hawthorne in greater depth. So now would be a more than appropriate time for that. I don't want to deride them for nearly erasing their leadership because they're fully committing to the young side. But it's fair to say they've committed themselves to, at best, 13th or 14th in 2023. You could look at their rebuild in a few different lights. Obviously love the way they went about things last year. I think Sam Mitchell's a fucking great coach. But it's like, if you really tried to accelerate this rebuild with the goal of getting in the eight, you still had a few more teams to jump. And even so, you'd be barely cracking the eight, even if all went exactly according to plan. So playing the long-term game here makes sense, just looking at the competition ahead of you. It's not that they couldn't be a finals team this coming year or the year after if they really pushed for it. But when you're looking at not just making finals, but wanting to win the whole thing, your odds of doing that in another few years are going to be way higher. And you're looking at a longer window of success because of this. And mortgaging a little bit of the short term, even if fans are tired of rebuilding, tired of losing, I hope they can see the broader goal here and why this makes sense. Because you still would have had to deal with Adelaide, Gold Coast, Port, even if you throw St. Kilda out, Carlton, plus the eight already there, you're telling me that you're going to be able to jump into eighth among that group? They would have needed a whole lot of things to break their way in order for that to happen. And even if it did happen, again, for what? An elimination final exit? So tough to swallow, especially when you had a season with so much progress. But I think in a couple years' time, Hawthorne will be there. And if they snuck up on anyone, it's because people have been ignoring the signs. The quote from Sam Mitchell is, I have no interest to just sneak in the finals. And if that means he's willing to take a few years to to stockpile the higher picks with the leadership's backing to 
get the group to mature together with the promise that's already shown from pieces like Newcomb, Lewis, Reeves, then power to him. And again, they got Lloyd Meek. They brought in Carl Amon. He was the first real transaction. He is an All-Australian, and the umpires like him, I'll say, because he got some weird three-vote stuff this year. You know what's funny? I've been pretty busy lately and haven't had a ton of opportunities to read a lot of footy stuff. My views on like Hawthorne's big picture plans versus short term, I had not read a single article about them, but I guess I watched them enough to kind of understand what this sort of move is about. So I'm going to pat myself on the back for that because I think we've both been in the right direction on Hawthorne and Fremantle from the beginning this year. Yeah. And like a lot of times it's one of those things with sports that I have much more access to in terms of coverage, because in addition to, you know, living in the U.S., there's far more media on the four major North American professional sports you know, the U.S. population is kind of big comparatively. And it's like, you know, if I was to look at a trade from a baseball, football or hockey team and on the surface, I would ask, wait, what the fuck are they doing? And then a few minutes later, you know, read into it a little more. It's like, oh, OK, I get it. I'm really just proud of myself for seeing what Hawthorne's doing on the surface instantly, because a lot of times knee jerk reactions are wrong and it's nice to know what's up. It's nice to be right. And just think throughout the next couple years at Hawthorne, you got to remember that it's about the long-term goal. It's not about sneaking into the eight. You know, in another year or two, you want to get into the finals as you're working your way up, but it doesn't have to happen right away. And say you win three flags in the four or five-year window. Is anyone going to be complaining that you finished in 12th instead of 8th a couple years before that? I don't think so. I don't think the Tiger fans are complaining about the the slow burn that they had at the beginning of the Damian Hardwick era. However you get there, you get there. As for the losers, there are two clear ones, I'd say. Gold Coast is the first of those losers. And it's funny because just a few weeks ago, it was like everyone's being linked to them. They're going to make all these moves. And all they got out of it was Ben Long, who's you know not a bad player, but not someone who's really going to move the needle. Yes, they got the appropriate compensation for Isaac Rankin, got the number five overall pick. Helped soften the blow of losing seven, but also your salary management was so poor that you had to give up pick seven. Yeah. When you've never made a final and your salary management has been so bad that your payroll's been overinflated to the point where you're auctioning off picks, basically, that's a problem. And it's a team that we had been saying seems so close on the field. And it's a disappointment that what they do off it may prevent them from really getting there on it. It's too early in their history to say, you know, this is why they're never good. They could push through and get into the finals this coming year. But it's like with better management, if you had taken the roster they had had and just been less fucked financially, instead of looking to clear space and give away a high pick, You're looking at how can we supplant this team? How can we supplement what's already a really solid midfield with, you know, kind of an anchor on defense, whether it's a stay at home defender or someone moving the ball, because that's something they're missing. That defensive group is what's lacking. They've got pretty good forwards. They take a hit by losing Rankin, but it's still a solid, if not spectacular forward group. I'd say average, if not above average. 
You got one of the best midfields in the competition, even with their weird usage of Matt Rowell. I think they found a nice spot for him, though, because he's now facilitating Tuke Miller and Noah Anderson. Yes, but it's still weird when you think about, you know, it's like, are you using the Mona Lisa as a placemat here? But this team's biggest issue is defensively. You know, I really liked what Caleb Graham added last year, but they still need more guys to build that defensive base. Look at Geelong's defense. You want to build a top defense? You need not just a Tom Stewart, but other guys around him that are really solid too. And yes, I'm very spoiled having not just Stewart, but DeConing, Henry, Buse, Cola Jashney. Oh, and now you have to specify that it's Jack Henry. And you could even throw Atkins into that defensive group. I think of him as more of a defensive midfielder. But all of the better teams have some sort of like defensive core. A team like the Bulldogs, you know, Daniel DeRay Richards. We learned some of their importance through injuries last year and what the Bulldogs looked like without them. Are you expecting Oleg Markov to suddenly resurrect himself? Is Mac Andrew, who, again, I love watching because people aren't built the way he's built, but are you expecting him to take that much of a leap? Someone in-house is going to have to step up. Multiple guys in-house are going to have to step up in order for this defense to be good enough to get this team to a final. And I don't know if that's going to happen. Whereas if they were coming from a position where they were looking to add instead of kind of consolidate shit, get their affairs in order, it would have actually been a really advantageous position entering this offseason where I think they could have probably added some really quality players. Could you imagine, like, a few guys probably wouldn't be that interested in going to Gold Coast if they're from Victoria or from the West. And that's the other problem. It's that the Suns' history and management doesn't lend themselves to being a desirable trade target. But if they have their shit right financially, you'd have one or two impact players, at least one or two, that would say, yeah, I'm fine with living somewhere else. Gold Coast is a pretty damn nice place to live. And you don't have the pressure of being in a footy hotbed. And it's like you could be, you know, if you're in your prime, you're towards the middle of your career, kind of your mid-20s, mid to late 20s. You're thinking, I could go here and be a leader and be one of the top guys with this great young core kind of following in my footsteps. And I could really help get this team over the edge. And Instead, there's really no opportunity to entice someone with that, which just sucks. I hope we're not talking about the Suns in a what-could-have-been context, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if, you know, like 11 months from now, we're talking about Stuart Dew getting shown the door when really the issues come from above him with list management. At least I hope list management is above him. You know, I'm a big believer when we look at the organization of clubs, and this can kind of bridge into talking about the biggest loser. I'm a believer, and this, like you see in baseball, successful clubs, basically the owners cut the checks and smile and wave and shake hands with people and say hi to the fans. The front office brings in the players and tells the coaches how they want the players utilized. And the coaches put the players in a position to succeed and do some you know, physical training, X's and O's, tactical type work with them. And if you don't have that power structure, you're screwed. How do the Angels waste Shohei Otani and Mike Trout every year? Their power structure is inverted. A GM and manager that have to respond to ownership 
when ownership's job should just be cutting checks. And at times, at least with a prior manager, although it seems like it's not happening right now, the GM was subservient to the manager or the Dallas Cowboys, where you look at why things have gone wrong for them for so long, even though they're off to a nice start this year, or the Raiders, it's because ownership has too much say in on-field operations. Jerry Jones, hire a fucking GM. Now, that sounds like I kind of went off on a weird tangent, but hear me out on this. Maybe a bad power structure is part of what's going on at St. Kilda. At the very least, their board seems pretty fucked. I guess we're bookending this episode with a discussion of the Saints because they seem like the biggest loser of all in this. It took their sacking of Ratten to remind me that they exist during this trade period. They had made notable plays for Jordan Degoe. Apparently, they'd been talking to Jack Bowes and Brody Grundy as well. The only player they managed to bring in was Zane Cordy from the Dogs. And there's so much more that they need to do in order to, in order to stay slash be competent, especially with the way they ended their season. It's not like they really lost anyone that big in the trade period. I mean, no, not at all. But I didn't think standing Pat was ever the solution or would ever be. When Patty Ryder retires and your solution is to do fuck all, I mean, are you really banking on Jack, 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 Jack Hayes, who's not a natural Ruckman, to be able to support Rowan Marshall? Are you banking on all of the Jacks panning out? Are you banking on Callum Wilkie to remain at the top of his game and able to get that space to thrive defensively still? Maybe some questions will be answered with a coaching hire, but I feel like we'll have to wait until the first few rounds, and then we'll probably just keep shitting on him. Here's my thing with where St. Kilda is right now. You are in a spot where you could do one of two things. Either start to dismantle and tear this thing down and get ready for a deep rebuild. Or say, all right, we've got some pieces here. Let's try to cobble something together. Throw whatever we can out there. Give it a shot to really go all in. And then in a couple years, we'll burn it to ground zero and then go up again. Staying where you are after a 10th place season where it's not like... There are a ton of young guys who have come up and shown, oh, yeah, the future's bright. And I mean, I mean, I like Mitch Owens for what it's worth. I like Marcus Windhager. The tagging looks to be figured out. But that alone and just staying the course isn't going to get you to the promised land. It's going to get you to like 12th or 13th. And you're not at a point age wise within your list where you want to be around 12th or 13th. If you're where Hawthorne is. If you're where Adelaide is, from an age standpoint, yeah, 12th or 13th is all right. Heck, Gold Coast this past year, as much as I just ripped on their financial situation, if you just look at the age of a lot of their players, you would say, yeah, 12th place, okay. Starting the climb. Where the Saints are age-wise, no. You need them to be in that 6-7 range by now. And they were there two years ago, but that's two years ago. And it's going to take more than an accurate Max King to get them there. Where they are age-wise, either you're going all in or completely burn it down. Because you're not inching towards a breakthrough. You need to either have that breakthrough or say, okay, this isn't going to work. If you're not first, you're last where the Saints are. And the Saints aren't first. And that's even before you throw in the Ratten thing. This gives off big-time Colorado Rockies vibes, at least the roster side of it. The coaching side of it doesn't because 
The Colorado Rockies, who I think are the most poorly run organization in baseball, they're fiercely loyal to their people to the point where they're just content with mediocrity forever or sub-mediocrity. But on field, this is like very much in line with what the Rockies do, where they just kind of stay the course when they're stuck in no man's land. And again, I'm using the baseball analogy here. So you have 162 games in baseball. Either you want to be winning 90 games or you want to be way the fuck down to the point where you're getting top draft picks. The worst place to be is in that like 70 to 75 win purgatory. And more often than not, that's where the Colorado Rockies are. And this seems to be where St. Kilda's heading. Do we have any leads on who the hell could end up with the Saints job? I mean, you could throw out the same names as always and see if one of those sticks. But I think they're going to end up elevating one of their own. They brought in Lenny Hayes as an assistant, their 2010 drawn grand final Norm Smith medalist. Maybe they'll just say, fuck it, him. Not Lenny! If you're looking at old club greats, Robert Harvey was not a great caretaker for Collingwood. But seriously, it's a terrible time for everything to happen. It's just, what is this supposed to accomplish? You're wandering in the desert. And the club leadership admitted they may have not set up Brown to succeed in the first place. Then why is he the one out the door? It's an Essendon-type situation. Is it just a red and black thing? I mean, I will say this. They weren't openly trying to court his replacement. They didn't do him anywhere near as dirty as Essendon did Rutten. I wonder if he got blindsided by this, or if he knew it was coming. It's just, I don't feel anywhere near as bad for him as I do for Rutten, because again, as far as we know, he wasn't treated as poorly. I feel bad for Saints fans, who it's just like, yep, more of the same. Something Daniel Cherney had tweeted, only one St. Kilda coach in history has lasted for six full seasons, that being Alan Jeans, who coached the club from 1961 to 1976. He is their premiership coach. He is the one. I guess if you want someone else to, I mean, if you want someone to last six seasons over two stints, I guess Ross Lyon is the front runner to come back. But what's that going to do? I mean, you look at the number of coaches that have even made it to 100 games with them. And just skimming this right now, I see five of them. I only see a couple other coaches that even got to 70 games. Whatever the solution is, it has to be a case where they're willing to stick with one thing for enough time for the coach to actually instill their system, to have the structure behind him, because that seems like it has never really happened at St. Kilda. And this has happened across not just multiple boards, multiple administrations. It's happened across people's lifetimes. This is not just a recent thing. This is a thing that happened before World War I started. How have they not learned? The Saints were another club that I didn't have, like, much of an opinion on. Like, entering this year, I thought they were going to be the shits. My knowledge of them was pretty minimal compared to other teams. But when you've had one coach in your entire history last for six seasons, like, yeah, no wonder they suck. So I guess we're ending this episode on a pretty angry note with how we went from winners to losers, how we're ending with St. Kilda. I'm sorry, Saints fans. You deserve better than this. I'm sorry for him, too. And I hope that whoever's next can turn things around. You think Cubs fans have had a rough? You think Red Sox fans had a rough? You think Browns fans have had a rough? You think Detroit Lions fans have had a rough? Show them St. Kilda. 
I imagine the next time we talk, we'll have St. Kilda's new coach because this has to be a thing where they're going to move somewhat quickly on it if they don't have their man already. So look for us to lead off our 70th episode with that, maybe our 71st. Of course, when news breaks, we'll be talking about it on Twitter at Americans Footy. I'll be at Castle Media. I'll be at BenjaminHK01. Brian Harambe, the footy cat, will be on Instagram at cat named Brian. Good luck to all those KBO and NPB playoff teams. And one more thing to look for. I'll be putting together a video form of the song that I had at the end of the last episode. We didn't bounce the share and just to have some visual accompaniment with it to really recap what the last season was, mostly on the field. So look for that in the coming days. Go listen to that if you haven't yet. It was one of Benjamin's best musical projects yet. I've been playing the trombone for 13 years now, about. Used it a little bit in this one. This was just mostly having some, doing some singing and some footy recap in one. It was a fun time. Hopefully you've had fun listening to us. We'll talk with you again soon.